0: Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about type 1 diabetes, everything from diagnosis to treatment strategies, hypoglycemia, technology, and telehealth. Clearly, we have a lot to cover, and to help us do that are two renowned experts in the field who together co-chair the Endocrine Society's eighth annual Endocrine Fellows Type 1 Diabetes Care and Management Program. Joining me are Dr. Earl Hirsch, Professor of Medicine and Diabetes Treatment and Teaching Chair at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and Davida Kruger, a certified nurse practitioner in diabetes for more than 30 years at the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan. Thank you both for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. Great us. to
0: be here, Aaron. Yeah. Now, before we get started, I first want to thank those who supported this episode through an independent medical educational grant. So a big thank you to Abbott Diabetes Care Incorporated, Dexcom Incorporated, Helmsley Charitable Trust, Insulate Corporation, Lilly USA, Medtronic Diabetes, and Tandem Diabetes Care. Thank you, everybody. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of ground to cover. So let's start with diagnosis. How does diagnosis of type 1 diabetes differ from type 2 diabetes? And can it be challenging to distinguish between the two?
1: I think what strikes me about that question is, can it be difficult to distinguish? So for those of us that are working in the world of diabetes, we probably would say that we can look at things like blood glucosis, We can look at hemoglobin A1C. We can look at something called GAD antibodies. And if patients haven't started insulin, insulin levels, there are numerous tests. And of course, you go on your clinical gut instinct when you meet this patient if they're in diabetic ketoacidosis. So there's a number of things that we would do. And the one thing to keep in mind is that age, is not something that you are concerned about. Because when I started in diabetes, and actually it's going to be 40 years, we would say you would think about someone who was overweight and you would think of somebody who had family history and sedentary. Those were the individuals who had type two diabetes and you would think of the youngins that had type one. And now we know that type one diabetes can be diagnosed at any age And it is misdiagnosed, because what happens is somebody comes into the healthcare system, they have elevated blood sugars, they may not yet be into diabetic ketoacidosis, they're in their 40s, they're in their 50s, and the healthcare provider makes the assumption it's type 2 diabetes, and that's wrong. And that's where we get into a lot of difficulties.
2: Earl? Yeah, so the JDRF estimates that 50% of type 1 diabetes is diagnosed in adulthood. The oldest person I ever had, and it was a classic presentation, was a 91-year-old man back in the 1990s who was um, actually referred to me by Dr. Oka Lernmark, who was uh, very involved with the uh, research with the GAD antibody. But I think that there has been a real evolution as we look at the demographics and epidemiology of type one versus type two, And while I often personally get frustrated when there are classic adults who come into our clinic who are diagnosed as type two and they're really type one, I can tell you that there are many patients who come in and even the experts can't tell, even when we have access to some research tools, genetic testing, we have antibody testing we can do, it's not always 100% clear. And I do want to point out that besides age and BMI, which are not the distinguishing features that they used to be, there really is occasionally overlap in insulin-resistant patients who may or may not have a family history of type 1 or type 2 diabetes, who do have low levels of antibodies, who do make insulin for decades. We actually showed in a study that in patients diagnosed after the age of 18 years, that 40 years later, 23% are still making a bit of endogenous insulin. And that endogenous insulin protected them from hypoglycemia, but they still had type one diabetes. So it's important to appreciate that the adult onset type one diabetes is different than childhood onset type one diabetes. And I would remiss by saying that all not all type, not all diabetes is type one or type two. Um, besides looking at monogenic diabetes and the various MODIs that have been um, discovered, we have mitochondrial diabetes, we have lipodystrophic diabetes, and maybe most interesting to me, there's a whole host of genetic mutations that we are now just discovering, which have been, these patients have been misclassified over the years. We're involved in a large study right now called RADIANT, where we are trying to figure out these various genetic mutations. And please go ahead and Google Radiant if uh, you have a patient who you think may have an atypical form of diabetes you can't figure out. But I think the bottom line is it's not as simple as when Davida and I started in this world of diabetes. I think that's the bottom line. Exactly.
0: Let me ask a quick follow-up to that one. We talked about how important it is to try to get the classification correct, and these days it's more complex. There might be other many, many options than there used to be. What are the potential drawbacks from having a misclassification? So if someone said this is type 2, when actually it was type 1.
1: Well, some of the things we work with is that uh, the referrals we get are people who perhaps in primary care, they've been very frustrated not being able to control the diabetes on say oral agents or GLP-1 receptor agonists, and the diabetes, um, the patient is not well controlled and they've tried all of that, even maybe put them on a basal kind of insulin. The patient's very concerned or enough therapies to keep them out of DKA. And then they come to your doorstep and the patient's very frustrated as well. Patient comes to your doorstep and something clicks and you're like, let me run some other tests. So the fact that the patient from the get-go is not getting the best care they can get, and their A1C is often not well controlled over that period of time, and you know we can talk about metabolic memory and how that plays into it, but really getting the patient the best care from the get-go would be one of the things that I would say is of concern.
2: You know, there's data that strongly supports getting people who truly are severely insulin resistant with an autoimmune etiology which is type 1 diabetes not only getting them on insulin but getting them on basal bolus insulin as soon as possible i think the best study comes from a study devita was involved with at the time it was a little before my time in the dcct looking at new onset people in their 20s and showing that the basal bolus insulin therapy with the better a1c of course preserved beta cell function, because at the end of the day, that's what you want to do. And although there are all of these esoteric types of diabetes that I mentioned earlier, insulin usually is going to work, especially while you're trying to figure out what's going on. Now, having said that, there are occasional situations where insulin may not be the best answer. And the one that comes to mind is, again, another esoteric form of diabetes, mitochondrial diabetes maternally inherited diabetes and deafness. Whereas it turns out the thiazolidinedione pioglitazone is the best therapy for that. Now that's like a board question for extra points. In the real world, seeing patients, insulin is usually going to be your best friend, especially while you're trying to figure out what's going on.
1: I think that's absolutely positively true. I think the problem happens is that if you're not in an endocrine practice, chances are that's not gonna happen. And that's where my concern is, is that for all the reasons you've stated, including that we wanna get that patient beta cell functions to relax and, and rest and to give them you know, the best control, we can d- give them for long-term best care.
0: Now, we know not every individual with type one diabetes is gonna require the same therapy. So what do you take into consideration when individualizing treatment strategies and how do new and emerging insulin and non insulin therapies shape that approach?
1: People want you to write them a protocol for managing type 1 diabetes. While we can give you a big picture, that yeah, you, you want to make sure that the basal rate isn't overwhelming the boluses. And so it ends up being 50 50, or now we're probably saying. 60-50. 60 or 70% on the boluses versus the basal, but you really have to adapt it to the person sitting in front of you. So, you know, we want to give you as much insulin as it takes to control your diabetes. We want to give you options and choices of insulin. We want to give you options as long as your insurance company will help you. We want to give you devices. I Someone just said they wanted to switch practices because the practice they were going said that you had to be in their practice for two to three years before they give you an insulin pump. That to me makes no sense. Get to know your patient, put them on an insulin pump. So the fact that we have continuous glucose monitoring for every patient that has type one diabetes should be that we offer insulin pumps that we offer other devices that we use all of the best therapies, the newer therapies. And then you really do personalize it to the person sitting in front of you. They need diabetes education. They need medical and nutritional therapy. But at the end of the day, it's not like one size fits all. And you've got to get to know the patient and what the needs are of that individual patient and tweak it to their needs. And I will even
2: take that a step further, Davida. This is why as clinicians, we have to sort of be chameleons and able to adapt to what is best for that patient. Because while I may think one therapy is going to be the best for that patient for receiving insulin, the patient may have very good reasons why that may not be the best patient, which is why we still have many patients who take multiple daily injections or patients who want to try pumps for a while. But the one thing that I feel very strongly about, and I think it shows in my patients, is the ability to at least try continuous glucose monitoring. There are very few reasons why I think I would agree for a patient with type one diabetes, especially a patient who's making little to no endogenous insulin should not be on a CGM, knowing how much hypo and hyperglycemia we miss with finger stick testing. I appreciate also, we are in a very unusual situation in that we are in a country that has access to all of these wonderful things. And I appreciate that there are many places in the world that do not. And I have to always give myself a reality check. There are places that are still struggling to get finger stick testing. There are many places that struggle to get insulin. And in fact, as you know, this has been a real interest of mine and a concern of mine, all of the insulin rationing that has been documented in the United States for both type one and type two diabetes. But I think my job as a provider is to know what all of the options are so I can help present the patient what option would be best and taking it one step further, knowing what insulins would be best for somebody on injections, including inhaled insulin and knowing the different pump situations and the pump options and knowing which pump and sensor combination would be best for that particular patient. And at the end of the day, I can make my recommendations, but the patient may decide they want to do something else, and I am fine with that.
1: Two things is that uh, Fred Whitehouse, who is my mentor, has always said that you are responsible for understanding every device and every insulin that came to market. Even if only one person wants that particular device, you are responsible for knowing that so that that patient can get that device. And then the other thing that kind of fries me is that patients will tell me that they didn't get choices so that I do know and you do know that it is much easier if you picked one pump, one sensor, one insulin in your practice, but that would only work for you. It doesn't work for the needs of our patients. So for those people listening to us today, I hope that they will go out and learn and provide every option available to their patients so that they can pick the product that meets the need of that patient. And I agree, I usually say to my patients, so here's a suggestion I would make, but at the end of the day, what is it you wanna do? Or does that work for you? Even if I'm adjusting insulin, I might say, I would adjust that by two units. Is that comfortable for you? Because I want the buy-in. And if it's not comfortable for the patient, they're not going to do it anyway. So I just think in in the world of technology, in the year we're living, that we are fortunate to be able to have choices and to have options, and that we are beholden to be able to offer everything to our patients so that they get what fits into their lifestyle.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, the only caveat to all of this, And the other reason why we have to know, especially on the pharmacologic side, the insulins, and even beyond the insulins, is that we may not have much choice based on coverage or based on what the patient can afford, which is why in my insulin talk I do to the Endocrine Society Fellows Program every year, I go back and give the basics on NPH and regular insulin. I don't like using those insulins in individuals with type 1 diabetes but there are occasional patients where we don't have much of a choice.
1: Agree. And if someone's starting up a new practice, I truly recommend that they partner with their representatives on each of these devices who can also bring in small practices, it can bring support. Even in our big practice, they bring us so much support in terms of helping us with education. If your institution will allow that.
0: So we've talked a lot about devices and technology, and like you said, there's a lot of options that are out there. And we know, depending on people's coverage, they might not be able to have access to every single one of those. But for a moment, let's just assume that these were all kind of on the table. How do you go about incorporating these sort of technologies into your treatment strategies, and how do you evaluate the data that comes from those technologies?
1: In our clinic, we really do try to lay everything out for the patient and as objectively as possible. There may be times when we say, look, you know, based on your diabetes, this probably makes more sense for you, but here's what we know about this product. Here's a website, here's some information, please do some of your homework, and then we'll help you align with your insurance, with your training, with everything that needs to go on. So we really do have an opportunity to say, okay, if you're interested in a pump, these are all the pumps on the market. These are as objective as we can. Here's the pros and cons. Here's some information. Here's some websites. Uh, Continuous glucose monitoring. This is what's on the website. And again, there may be situations, you know, if a patient says to me, oh, you know, I'm not sure I can do tubing or I'm not sure I want it on my phone or there's a thousand questions that you ask a patient that helps them hone in on what the choice should be for them. And so we really do try to have that. So the patient has made a good decision for themselves with input, objective input from the diabetes educators in our clinic and other people.
2: This is really, I think, a very important issue because Davida and I are working in diabetes centers that have a lot more resources than the average community endocrinologist or primary care physician. My very last patient yesterday afternoon, she was 32 years old, she's only had her diabetes two or three years, and she's made a decision, she wants to start a pump. And she's done a little bit of her own homework, but she has lots and lots and lots of questions, and not questions that I had the time, and I spent a lot of time with her, I couldn't answer all of these questions. And it's sort of like, since it's a four-year commitment for the warranty, it's a little bit like buying a car. And, you know, even just going on a website You wouldn't do that to go buy a car. You'd want to go and give it a test drive anyway. And so what we ended up doing is I answered all my questions about the pros and the cons that she had. And then we happened to have a pump onboarding course where she could actually play with the buttons and talk to the nurses. And occasionally we have patients come in to talk also about their experience because it's a big decision when you decide what you want to do and why. for that matter, changing from one system to another system. And not all practices have that, is the point. I think there's nothing wrong with using the representative from that company with the understanding that that representative is going to have a biased view. But there really isn't much more of a choice, quite frankly, other than um, going online and seeing what you want to get online. But this is a huge, huge issue. And um, it's different depending on where you practice. It's also different if you're in a, a rural versus a, an urban practice, if you're in a giant group practice compared to a very small practice. At the end of the day, though, you want the patient to be happy with all of the decisions because there are so many decisions to make. But I'm going to come back and say, in my point of view, as long as they are wearing a sensor, ideally closed loop. <laughs> But even if open loop, they are wearing a sensor if they decide to wear a pump.
1: And I agree with you. And the other comment I would make is that the whole environment of insulin pumps is like a moving target. And I think we're going to see an explosion of several new in the next year or two, maybe a little longer, a little shorter. And one of the things I tell my patients is that just because you've loved the brand you've had, don't quickly... Jump into that same brand until you've looked around. Now, you may want to stay with that same brand, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I want you to understand what the new options may be, and if that suits your needs now, four or five years later, because even though warranty is four years, most insurance companies make the patient keep the pump for five years before they can get a new pump. And a lot has changed in technology. If you think about just like cars, but just like pumps in five years, a lot can change. And so make sure you take the time to look and whether it's talking directly to the reps or we have the same thing in our clinic where it's, you know, they can come in and do the pushing and touching and feeling. And we do answer questions, but make sure you're making commitment for four or five years that that's what you really want. I'm going to add
2: one more caveat to that. I mean, I agree with everything Devita said, but what we know, and Devita and I have been in all of these hybrid closed-loop trials together, we know what's coming on the market. We know what's been published or what's been presented, what we can talk about, and we know we're just waiting for FDA. But the point is, just because you're looking at a certain pump, Brand X, it doesn't matter, we know that within the next three to six months more likely than not, there is going to be an upgrade to that technology on the market. And so that also has to be taken into consideration if that new technology with that pump is enough of a reason to either stay with that company or go to that company if you're not on that company now, or if you're on multiple injections. It's fascinating. And my concern is that the average clinician in practice can't keep up with all of this. It's too hard. The other point is, the fact that all of these work differently and what the clinician has to do with all these pumps are a little different because they all work differently under the hood with their algorithms. And if I wasn't doing this and living this and breathing this and doing the studies with this, I'm not sure I would be very good with this because there is so much.
1: (laughs) And then the one other comment I wanna make about pumps because I know there's other questions is that when you prescribe a pump, it is your responsibility for making sure that somehow that patient gets quality education to use the pump. And if you don't have the staff like we have, we still use the trainer from that company. And so I prescribe pump X, that company comes in and does two different days and follow up more if needed. The patient should not be handed the pump and trained themselves. You should provide quality education to that patient. And you know, it makes me crazy when a patient comes in and they said, oh yeah, I got my pump a year ago. What was your training? I didn't get any. And you know that happens all the time.
2: I know, YouTube, if
1: that. Yeah, yeah.
0: I know, I I see it too. So maybe now we can tackle that analysis component. So now all these technologies are being used and you're seeing all these folks, how do you evaluate the data from those technologies?
2: We started looking at data from glucose meters back in 1995. Now that was a long time ago. And that made me very interested in all sorts of topics including the impact of glucose variability, um, using glucose variability in the world of type 1 diabetes, since that's what we're talking about now, as a way for looking at risks for hypoglycemia, looking at endogenous insulin secretion as a very easy, quick, and very cheap way. And um, we are dependent on it. It is the download of whether it's the pump, the sensor, the hybrid closed loop, or even the meter, now we're into smart pens. You have to see the data, which frankly to me is just ideal for the telemedicine visits. When Davida and I did our last in-person endocrine society fellows meeting, and Davida, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we were in New Orleans. So. And we had 90 fellows, 60 of them were adult internal medicine trained, and the other were pediatric, and they were all looking for jobs or just recently accepted a job offer. It was in March of 2019. And the thing that was so surprising to me in March of 2019 is that, at least on the adult side, all 60 of these fellows said to me that when they were interviewing for jobs, when they were interviewing for a clinical position at an academic center, like where Davida and I work, the downloads were critical and everybody had their native download and that is how decisions were made. Whereas out in private practice, things were based more on discussion with the patient and hemoglobin A1C. And there was a a real dichotomy in terms of how type one diabetes was managed based on where the care was. It's not an all or none. There was obviously some academic practices that don't practice like the Vita and I do, and some private practices that are really into the downloading, but that was what I heard over and over and over. And one of the things that I hope happened, one of the many silver linings that I hope happened from the pandemic is that more of our endocrinology colleagues are now looking at the CGM, the pump, And the smart pen data, I know a lot of practices started getting into it because they sort of had to for the telemedicine visits when everything was locked down. And so the data to me are absolutely critical to know exactly where you are going to change the insulin, no matter if a pump or a MDI patient knowing where the insulin needs to be changed and using a hemoglobin A1C to make insulin adjustments in type one diabetes, I don't want to be too strong on this, but the word malpractice comes to mind. Because How can you make an insulin adjustment based on an A1C, not knowing anything about the glucose levels, and also knowing as we published earlier this year, what a crude marker A1C is anyway, of overall glucose control. And so that, and that's a whole other discussion. But I know that's how some practices do it. It's different for type two diabetes, where you're trying to make a decision if you need to add a drug or start insulin in somebody with type two diabetes. But in type one diabetes, you can't use A1C for insulin decisions, at least in my humble opinion, but I'd be curious what my colleague, oh, uh, thinks. I thinks.
1: Absolutely not, because uh, it doesn't tell you if you've had low blood sugar, or high blood sugar. It doesn't tell you anything. And I think uh, you're exactly right. Through the pandemic, we learned more. We were already doing uploadings and downloadings and looking at data. But what we learned during the pandemic when we were doing so much telemedicine is that people weren't necessarily connected to us. And so we spent the first three months during the um, lockdown. We were still going into the office, but we were calling patients and saying, OK, I can't see your data. And I got to see your data because if they walked into the clinic and handed me a pump or a sensor I could do that now they weren't coming into my clinic so we spent three months calling patients and hooking them up and now for the most part our patients are connected to us remotely And if you get a pump training, we actually put it on the shoulders of the pump trainers from each of the companies to make sure our patients know how to upload their pumps or they have the app so they get direct. And when we teach them how to use a CGM, we make sure they're connected so that if I'm doing telemedicine and I do one and a half days a week of telemedicine still, I can get into their data and say, oh, here's your stuff because I don't know how you exist. And I agree, it's CGM data that I'm looking for, although more and more as the pump stuff are integrated and become more sophisticated, I need that too. But I need one or the other to be able to manage their diabetes. I have no clue what's going on in your life if I can't see this data. And it isn't as complicated as it sounds. If you have a setup in your institution, the patient has a device it's easy to connect the two so that you can see the data. And I'm not trying to minimize it at all. It really is pretty simple. And then if you're not comfortable interpreting the data, there's a thousand different articles and or presentations that you can listen to in almost every diabetes organization that will teach you how to interpret the data. So there's no excuses. And again, I don't know how you exist. And if a patient gives me two or three blood sugars, at this point in my career i'm like well, what are those and what do i do with those and what's happening to you when you sleep and what's happening to you two hours after a meal so i think that we really need to be sure that everybody knows how to do this and i know one of the other things because now i know we're talking about type 1 diabetes but because the primary care world is managing so much of type 2 diabetes. I know the companies are also working with them to explain how to use the data for CGM to access it. So hopefully it'll be a trickle down where those individuals will have better care and insulin will be started at the appropriate time and medications will be adjusted. But if you're going to see people with diabetes, you have to know what a CGM is, you especially type 1. Everybody deserves to have one. You need to know what it is, how to interpret the data, how to access the data, how to teach the patient what to do with the data. You just can't practice type 1 diabetes and not understand this. You just can't. Well, you can, but just, <laughs>
0: just, wouldn't be just not as effective as we are. <laughs> right on. There's two things that have come up in this conversation that I feel I have to ask you about. One, we're just talking about telemedicine. So. Obviously with the pandemic, so many are turning to telemedicine. What's your approach to delivering optimal care in a virtual environment?
1: You know, I think it's very interesting because I get, I have to then check in my own patient to make sure that everything is their meds and stuff that I would normally use an MA for. Although I know there are plenty of places that are doing telemedicine and the MA calls the patient ahead of time and gets all that done. That isn't how we handle it. So I get 30 minute blocks for a return and 60 minutes for a new. So I really feel like I actually have more time than before, because by the time the patient arrives and the patient is checked in and I get into the room. So now at the dot of the time, I'm I'm there, the patient's there. And as I said, that we're trying to make sure ahead of time that I can access the data. So in terms of management, looking at data, uh, reviewing medications, uh, all that stuff, I think I'm actually have opportunities to spend more time with the patient than before. The things that I really am concerned about is that, you know, they can show me their sights, but I can't touch their sights. They can hold up their feet, but I can't get a pulse. And some of that you have to work in, in now in conjunction with the primary care provider who could do a foot exam if they're going in for something else. Or if I want a blood pressure and they don't have a blood pressure machine, I'm asking them to make sure they get it on any other visit they're going to see. So some of those things are are harder to make sure that I get to manage the blood pressure, I can get my labs, I can get them to go see an eye exam. There are some things that make it harder. So what I say to my patients is I'd like you to come in at least once a year so I can physically touch you and the rest we can probably do. Telemedicine is not going to go away because patients are incredibly busy, they have lives, they've seen what it's not, they don't have to drive 30, 40 minutes to see me, they don't have to park a car, they don't have to pay for parking, they don't have to come up in an elevator, they don't have to sit in a waiting room, and then when they're done with the visit, they don't have to drive back to wherever. They can ask for 45 minutes in the middle of their work day, and then at the end of the day, they can still go home or take a visit, so it's not going away. We just need to figure out some of these things, and Henry Ford has come up with this kit, that a patient can purchase, and they've done it very reasonable, that telemedicine gives me, if I were looking in ears, I could look in an ear, I can get a pulse, I can get a pulse, I can get a blood pressure. And so that's the next step, I think, that we'd like our patients to be able to do so that I could get those parameters. You know, the only thing to
2: add is it's like anything, there are always pros and cons of everything we do. And in terms of the one of the things that has been a lot of fun for me is looking at the patient's surroundings. Maybe I'm in their living room, their bedroom, their kitchen, and I get to see things. I get to see the dogs. I get to see how they're really... And as somebody who's providing care for a chronic disease, that gives me knowledge that I wouldn't have otherwise. And, and people don't talk about that, but I, I think that's a huge plus if it's a situation where I can't get the data, I'm at a point now that I'm just rescheduling the appointment. Yeah. Because doing any visit, but especially a telemedicine visit and not having the CGM or the pump data if somebody's wearing a hybrid closed loop pump. There's no reason for me to do it because exactly. there's nothing else for me to do. Yeah. Um, the one thing I will say mm-hmm. is I am concerned about especially people with long durations, in this case, type 1 diabetes, since that's what we're talking about. I worry about accuracy of blood pressures. I worry about, you know, knowing that there has been some retinopathy that has been missed, just like there has been some dental things that have been missed. It's not just diabetes. And I worry about that. The big one in the type 1 world, not the foot ulcers, although I've seen that, the big one is the blood pressure impact of having uncontrolled blood pressure for many, many months. Either the patient didn't know they had high blood pressure or for that matter, low blood pressure. They're running around dizzy all the time because they're hypotensive. And believe it or not, there are people who either don't have a blood pressure cuff or they have an old one that's inaccurate. And I will just tell you in my experience, I don't know if the data bears this out, this is my caveat, but I have become totally unimpressed with the wrist blood pressure cuffs. I ask everybody to go get an arm one, at least in people with diabetes, it's been a problem. And I was told by a pediatric endocrinologist when I was a medical student, the most important part of the physical exam, and these are kids and teenagers, is the blood pressure. The blood pressure is so important. And at the very least, I'm hoping that, especially with my long-term patients who've had their diabetes 20 to 60 years and plus, I want to make sure I have good blood
0: pressure readings. My last question for today, it came up earlier, hypoglycemia, obviously a big concern for individuals with type 1 diabetes. I want to hear from you. What are your prevention and treatment strategies for this dangerous condition? One of the things
1: I would say, though, is if you prescribe insulin, you need to prescribe a method to treat severe hypoglycemia. And we have three new ones to market. So we have the glucagon kits and we have other pre-filled and we have nasal so that if you're writing prescription for insulin and a family member needs to know what it is and how to use it. And obviously the patient's going to be unconscious. So there has to be something in between that we also do. But we have to keep reminding ourselves to write that prescription. And sometimes the patient will say, oh, I don't want to take it because I've never had to use it but their diabetes may change. I mean, the fact that we use CGM and we use integrated pumps, a lot of that will help us prevent hypoglycemia because as blood sugars go down, the insulin turns off. That doesn't mean the patient's never gonna have hypoglycemia, doesn't mean they're never gonna have an assisted low blood sugar. There's a lot of things. So we really do wanna make sure that the patient knows how to identify hypoglycemia, things that may cause hypoglycemia, And oral treatments that they can administer themselves, as well as either nasal injectable kinds of hypoglycemia. But I think it's all about making sure the patient knows what it is, uh, how to prevent it, and how to treat it. Like if you're going to drink alcohol, you have to eat, you can't just drink. If you're going to be more physically active, you may get the benefit of that activity for 24 hours. And so you may have issues with low blood sugars. All those things that we have to constantly talk about with people with diabetes um, and not stacking insulin. The good news is, is that we have all these options now for
2: glucagon. The bad news is, is that if we look at the studies, looking at who gets glucagon prescriptions, it's very low. Very low. Even if
1: they've had an assistant and they're leaving the ER, they don't always fill them.
2: That's right. So I don't want to make the analogy for vaccinations, but we're even lower than that, Davida. And it's very scary. And there's no excuse for that in my view. I had a lady yesterday that I prescribed a nasal glucagon. And this was a lady who did not yet have a severe hypo event, but she's now on dialysis, brand new. And I don't care if you're type 1 or type 2, those patients on insulin need to be prepared. Now, the other big thing just to point out is... The CGM is great, but people tend to sleep through the alarms often. And to me, what has been such a major, major benefit has been the ability to share the CGM data real time. And whether you're talking about um, a child in the bedroom, you know, 20 feet down the hall, or you're talking about a spouse 3,000 miles away, that if that alarm goes off, there can be one, two, five 10 people who know at once, yeah. and that has been a huge, huge benefit that I don't think we talk enough about. Again, even after an event happens, why were you not sharing your data? And <laughs> never, there's never, in my view, there's never an excuse, and I haven't seen the data in terms of who shares and who doesn't share, but I have no doubt it's much lower than it should be.
0: Well, you two have been more than generous with your time. So that's all we've got for today. But a huge thank you to the two of you coming on here and sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Aaron. Yeah, our
1: pleasure.
0: That's all for this episode. If you enjoyed the conversation and would like to learn more, I encourage you to check out the Endocrine Society's 8th Annual Endocrine Fellows Type 1 Diabetes Care and Management On Demand Programming. Shared by Davida Kruger and Dr. Earl Hirsch, the program is free and offers 12 AMA PRA Category 1 credits and 12 ABIM MOC points. You can find it at the Society's Center for Learning at education.endocrine.org. We'll also put a link to it in the description of this podcast episode, and you can find that and our other episodes at endocrine.org podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.